Our sermon today is taken from John 16, verse 25 to 33. This is the word of God. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. For the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you, you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered each to his own home and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, and in me you may have peace. In the world you, have, you will have tri tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. That says the Lord. Thank you, Yoss. Okay, uh, let me pray one more time before we begin. Father, again, we're reliant upon you in this work. Speak to us through your word. Make it real. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so friends, we're going to continue in our sermon series through the book of John. And the next three to four weeks, we're going to, we're going to uh, stay in the book of John until we finish the section of the book that we're in. The section of the book that we're in is called the Pharaoh Discourse. The Pharaoh Discourse is chapters 14 to chapter 17 of the book of John, where Jesus prepares his disciples for what life will look like after he leaves. That's why it's called the Farewell Discourse. So Jesus here in verse 25 says, if you read it, the hour is coming. Okay, what is the hour? Remember the term, the hour, that phrase in the book of John, has always referred to the time when Jesus will be crucified, when he'll resurrect, and when he'll ascend back to the Father. When the hour comes, Jesus says here in verse 25, the disciples um, will then truly understand God's salvation purposes. That's what you're saying. So far, I have said these things to you in figures of speech, Jesus says. The hour, the hour is coming when I'll no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but I'll tell you plainly about the Father. Right now, so Jesus is saying right now, before the hour, before the hour comes, before I die, resurrect and ascend to the father, before that comes, you don't fully understand. You don't truly know God in the way that you will know God after the hour. Or as just Jesus describes again in another way, look at the beginning of verse 26. In that day, right? In that day, the day that comes after the hour, after the death and resurrection of Christ and ascension of Christ, in that day, you'll know God. You will truly know God. But right now, you don't yet truly know him. That's what Jesus is telling his disciples. Okay, can I sidetrack here a little bit? Now, it's a scary thing to not know God. There's nothing more frightening than knowing that a sovereign, holy, righteous, all-controlling, all-knowing, all-powerful God exists. But yet at the same time, realizing that you don't know him. There's nothing more frightening than that, that you don't know where he stands. Is he for you? Is he against you? Is he pleased with you? Is he disappointed in you? This is the position that many of us perhaps are in today. 
We know that a holy, sovereign, righteous creator God exists, but that's the extent of it. You don't really know who he is. You don't really know how he feels about you. And if that's true, then there's absolutely nothing more important in life for you to figure it out. J.I. Packer, uh, in his uh, uh, most important books, probably, Knowing God, says this. As it would be cruel to an Amazonian tribesman to fly him to London, put him down without explanation in Trafalgar Square and leave him, as one, as one who knew nothing of English or England, to fend for himself, so we are cruel to ourselves if we try to live in this world without knowing about God, whose world it is, and who runs it. The world becomes a strange, mad, painful place, and life in it a disappointing and unpleasant business. For those who do not know about God, disregard the study of God, and you sentence yourself to stumble and blunder through life blindfolded, as it were, with no sense of direction and no understanding of what surrounds you. This is a sure way to waste your life and lose your soul. If you don't know God, if you don't know the sovereign creator of this universe, how are you going to navigate through life? And what Jesus does here, he informs the disciples of who God is. He assures that one day they'll know him, but they'll know him only because God himself will make himself known to them, top down. And this knowledge of truly then having a relationship with God Knowing this, Jesus says in verse 33, will give them peace, a peace that emboldens you to follow even when it's costly to follow him, even when tribulation comes. Okay, how so? Three things I want to point out from the passage. Point one, a God who initiates relationship. Point two, a people helplessly self-reliant. Point three, a peace divinely fortified. A God who initiates relationship, a people helplessly self-reliant, and a peace divinely fortified. Fortified. Okay, point one, a God who initiates relationship. There will come a time, Jesus says, when the disciples will truly know the Father, God as Father. And notice, immediately, Jesus uses a personal pronoun to describe this all-controlling, holy, sovereign God. What is that? Father. Jesus is saying the nature in which you will know God is as if he is your father. It, the, the, the nature in which you will know God after the hour in that day is not just merely informational. It's not like a tempo reporter knows about President Jokowi. That's just informational. Knows data about him, knows his schedule maybe, knows his favorite spots to hang out, his decisions he makes. That's informational. He's saying, no, no, no. The way you'll know God is not just informational. You'll know God in the way that President Jokowi's daughters and children and son knows him in a personal way as a father there's a big difference there and and to know god in this way as father that's all you need isn't it it really is whatever the world throws your way if you truly know that a sovereign all-powerful ruler of the universe the the most the strongest being in the cosmos considers you his child that's all you need to truly be at peace no matter what life throws your way see my daughter, Elena, can't feel that kind of peace from knowing that I'm her father. She can't. Why not? Because as much as I love Elena and I want to raise her perfectly, I can't. I'll fail. Some disciplines that I'll do, although done out of good intention, will be too harsh because I'm imperfect. Some acts of love I do sometimes will end up spoiling her because I'm sinful. 
Some criticisms I give her that I intend to build her up will be too critical because I am prone to unholy anger. I'm human. Some feedbacks I give her will be uninformed because I'm not all-knowing and I'm ignorant of situations. Sometimes I want to protect her from external dangers, but I can't because I'm not omnipresent and I'm not sovereign. See, I can't go to Lena and say, look, you have me as a father, so have peace in the midst of tribulation. I can't. She'll say, uh, no. But imagine having God as your father. No discipline he throws your way is too harsh. No act of love he does creates spoiled brats. Every criticism and feedback he gives his child is perfectly informed and lacks no data. No external danger that befalls his children is out of his sovereign jurisdiction because he's meticulously in control of all things. This is all you need to know. This is all the disciples needed to see Jesus saying, this is all we need to walk through life in peace and courageous obedience to the Father. That's all you need. And this is central in Jesus' theology. Not only that you will one day know God as Father, but also the only reason why you will know God as Father is because God will initiate the relationship. This is important. God is the one who will come down to you. He'll be the one who will initiate this, not you to him. This is central in this theology. Where do we see that? Verses 26 to 28. The only reason why the disciples will know God as Father in that trusting, filial, familial relationship is because God has first made himself known to them, not the other way around. This is absolutely important for us to know. Okay, where do we see that? First, verse 26. We see God the Spirit initiating to the disciples. Okay, verse 26. Jesus says, In that day... You will ask in my name. In that day, okay, in that day you'll know the Father. Mentioned earlier, that day refers to the time when Jesus Christ dies, resurrects, and ascends and leaves the disciples. Ascends to the Father, leaves the disciples, okay? That's, that's the day in which they will truly know the Father. But then, remember, as we study chapters 15 and chapter 16 of the book of John, we're also informed that in that day, who's going to come? Someone was going to come. Who is it? The Holy Spirit. John 16, verse 7. It's not on your screen. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away, Jesus says. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. Referring to the Holy Spirit. But if I go, I will send the Holy Spirit to you. So, when Jesus says, let's connect it here, verses, in verses 25 and 26, I will tell you plainly about the Father in that day. You'll know the Father in that day. Through who? How is he going to reveal that truth to you? How is he going to make the Father known to you? Through the Holy Spirit. He, the Holy Spirit, after the hour of the cross, after I leave you, in that day, when I'm gone, the third person of the Trinitarian Godhead, the Holy Spirit will come down initiate to you and reveal the father to your heart that is why you'll know him as father because the holy spirit will make him known and this is not new theology jesus came up with this has been god's declaration throughout the old testament let me read ezekiel 36 24 27 old testament god said and i will give you a new heart and a new spirit i will put in you and i'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you heart of flesh and I'll put my spirit within you, all referring to this time Jesus is talking about, in that day, and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. The spirit will come, make the father known to you, 
and that's why you obey his rules. Notice, obedience to his rules is not what saves you. The Spirit revealing himself to you, revealing the Father to you, that's what saves you. Obeying his rules is a fruit, is a result of that new relationship you now have with the Father. Okay. One, God the Spirit initiates. But not only God the Spirit initiates, two, God the Father initiates. Where do we see that in verses 25 to 28? Well, look at verse 26 to 27. Jesus says, And I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. For the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed, note, that I came from God. I came from God. Jesus Christ, God the Son, came from who? From God the Father. God the Father is a part of this initiation process. He sent God the Son to you. And one of the most uh, famous, or at least used to be the most famous verses John 3, 16, you all know it, probably. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. When you read that, for God so loved the world, God there, we think Jesus Christ. That's kind of our first reaction. For Jesus Christ loved the world, right? No. Jesus Christ isn't the focus of John three sixteen. For God so loved the world, listen, that he gave his only son. Who's the focus here? Who gave his only son? The father. It's the father's love. That's the focus of John 3, 16. The father initiated and gave, sacrificed his only son. So the Holy Spirit initiated. In that day, he'll reveal the father to you. God the father initiated by sending his son. But third and lastly, God the son also initiated. He condescended. He took on flesh. He was born as a human being. That's what Christmas is all about. And he died in your place on the cross. Where do we see that? Verse 28. Look at verse 28. I, Jesus talking about himself, I came from the Father. God the Son came from the Father and have come into the world. And now I'm leaving the world and going to the Father. So God God the Son also came and took on flesh fully. Thus, verses 25 to 28, Jesus emphatically declaring that the only reason the disciples know God personally and have a filial relationship with God as their Father The only reason that is, is because God the Father sacrificially initiated by sacrificing His Son to die on the cross for our sins in our place. And because God the Son humbly initiated by coming into the world, taken on flesh, born as a human, condescended, and died on the cross for our sins. And because God the Spirit powerfully initiated by coming down to reveal and impress this gospel truth so deeply into your hearts, making it alive which otherwise would be dead, exciting it to receive the gift of life that this triune God is giving you, thus ascribing every single tiny minor detail of the work of our salvation solely to the gracious initiating work of the one Trinitarian God to whom we ascribe all power, all glory, all majesty, and all honor to. It is His work that came to us God, Jesus did not make this top-down theology on his own when it comes to God redeeming his people. This has always been throughout the Old Testament. When God made a covenant promise to Abraham, when he said, I'll be with you and I'll commit myself to you, Genesis 15, what was Abraham doing? He was asleep. The picture there is a father whispering unto a sleeping child, a helpless, passive, sleeping child, I'm committing myself to you. I am initiating to you. 
When God redeemed Israel from Egypt, his people, what reason did God tell Moses in Exodus 3 of this redemption? Because Israel obeyed God's commandments? No. He said, I have seen the affliction of my people, God says, and because I remember the promise that I've made to them. God initiated. The Ten Commandments weren't even given. They were, it was given later after Israel was freed. The Ten Commandments weren't meant as a prerequisite for them to be freed. God initiated. And then as Israel journeyed from Egypt to the promised land, what did God say in Deuteronomy chapter, Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 7 to 8? It was not because you are more in number than any other people that the Lord has set his love on you and chose you. For you are the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. It's his initiative. From the beginning, it has never been about our ability to reach up to him by our personal obedience and holiness. It's always been a top-down, gracious, initiating work of God. So then why is it when you think about your relationship with God, when you specifically think about your relationship with him, why is it that you say you have to earn it? Why, why do you have to earn it? Throughout history, God is clear. He's been the one that initiates to undeserving people. Jesus in our passage today breaks down the details of that inner workings of the initiation, but he's the one who comes to us. But for some reason, when it comes to your relationship with God, you put an unnecessary and unrealistic burden upon yourselves in having to earn it. And you won't receive this love God's offering until you feel good enough until you feel religious enough, until you feel spiritual enough to become his child. Do you really believe God all of a sudden changed his MO for you? He changed the, throughout all of history. He's been the initiator, but for you, he's going to make you earn it. Why do you think that? Maybe, maybe because it's you think you're less deserving than most people. Really? You, you think you're less deserving than Abraham, who gave up his wife to a foreign king to save his life twice? Sarah was way too patient with him. You really think you're less deserving than Moses, who murdered somebody? You really think you're less deserving than David, who committed adultery, abused his power over a woman who was someone else's wife, and then kill the husband to cover it up? You think you're less deserving than that? You think you're less deserving than the Apostle Paul, who before receiving Christ, led a movement that massacred and murdered hundreds of Christians? Are you less deserving than that? Why? God has always graciously initiated. The Old Testament proves that. Jesus' words here confirm it. Why do you put that burden on yourself? That when everyone else fails, for some reason, you are required to earn it. Self-reliance. Self-reliance is the curse that has doomed us. And it's always been the mistake of the church, which is also the mistake that the disciples made in our passage today. Self-reliance. Where do we see that? Point number two. A people helplessly self-reliant. Now, we see the disciples here assuming too much of themselves. They're, they're too self-reliant. Verse 29. His disciples said, Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Now, remember, 
Remember, Jesus clearly said that, yes, you will plainly know God personally as Father, but he also said the time for that is not here yet. You won't know it now yet. That will be revealed to you after the hour, right, after he dies and resurrects. It will be revealed to you in that day, not yet. After the death and resurrection of Christ happens, the Spirit will come and impress that truth upon your hearts. But the disciples of verse 29 said this, oh, okay, no, 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 I get it now. No, I don't need to wait for that day. I understand it now. Okay, you're speaking plainly to us now. Now we believe, now we know. See, they're self-reliant. The attitude they had towards a relationship with God is not as a dependent agent humbly to wait and receive, but as an active decider, summoning it to happen. Jesus says, you'll see that soon. You'll see it not yet after the hour. But they said, no, 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 I got it now. I understand it now. What is that? If not the heights of arrogance and self-reliance. Even with a human king, you don't decide when you get to know them. You don't summon a human king. They summon you. It is simply the heights of arrogance to assume otherwise with a heavenly king. To where Jesus sarcastically replies to them in verse 21, do you believe? Really? You really believe? See, the foundational error they had, which led them to think that they truly know God as Father, is that they think knowing God as Father is merely about head information, right? You've told me, verses 25 to 28, you've told me these things about, about God and the Father and the Trinity. Okay, informationally, I know it in my head, so I must know the Father as my Father, right? Jesus is saying, no, you're getting it all wrong. Now, if you think that knowing somebody is just all about head information, then sure, you might land to that conclusion. And, and get, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that understanding proper theology is not important, okay? It's very important. You have to know about who God is. Knowing, you can't know somebody unless you have information about the person. Knowing information about who God is in your heads, in your minds, from the Bible, is bare minimum. You have to know that. You have to know that. I'm not saying you don't have to know that. And unfortunately, proper theology has been downplayed in the church these days. Mysticism, mysticism that says there's no concrete way of knowing God is running rampant and has seeped into the church and is dangerous. Emotionalism that says what your heart feels is more reliable than what your head knows has become a major cultural norm since the age of the Romanticism in the 18th century. That's also seeped into the church and is dangerous. It's important to know theology proper, and it's been neglected. Often at best, it's been marginalized to seminaries for the theologians, right? That, that stays there. And at worst, understanding theology proper is demonized as unspiritual, as if the use of cerebral capacity somehow undercuts faith. Proper theology is utterly important. What Jesus revealed about God and the Trinity in verses 25 to 28, that's theology. You don't know information about someone, you can't claim to know one. That's bare minimum. But, friends, knowing God is not less than proper theology, but yes, it is also much more. Let me repeat that again. Knowing God is not less than proper theology, but it is much more. That's the mistake the disciples fell into. They thought just the information was enough. The disciples here heard Jesus' good theology of the Trinitarian God in verse 25, 28 of Jesus' uh, theology of salvation and top-down in nature. And God initiates. And they heard all that and they said, okay, cool. I know God now. 
Jesus says, no, you don't. How do we know that their head information is, is not yet a knowing, true knowledge of God? Verse 31 and 32, Jesus answered them, do you now believe? Sarcastic question there. Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered each to his own home and will leave me alone, yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. Do you really believe, Jesus asks? Because soon you'll abandon me. When the hour comes, when the soldiers come to capture me, to crucify me, you'll leave me. You'll prioritize your own safety, your own comforts, your own security. You'll leave me each to your own home. Which did happen in Gethsemane, right? The soldiers came to capture Jesus and they ran away. Even Peter, who remained strong at first, eventually denied Jesus three times. No, disciples, Jesus says, no, no, no. You don't really yet know God as Father in this familial trust faith kind of way. Verses 25 to 28 might have given theological information about God, which is good. And through it, you may know God like a, like a reporter from Tempo Magazine knows President Jacoby. But you don't truly know him yet. You haven't truly believed and put faith and trust and rested and loved and cherished and adored and embraced the God that I'm speaking of in verses 25 to 28. How do we know that? Because your words confess him today, but your lives speak otherwise tomorrow. Jesus has been clear over and over again. The Messiah must die. This is the Father's will. I must go to the cross. I have to pay this. This is the Father's will. But yet when the time comes, what do the disciples do? They either ran away or like Peter, they drew the sword and fought it. They run away from the cost of obedience or they fought the cost of obedience. If you truly knew the Father, if they truly knew the Father, they would have acted like Jesus did. They would have stood there, or they would have let Jesus stand there. He held his arms out, and he said, I'm Jesus. Take me. This is what it means to follow the Father. Take me. Crucify me. They won't run away from it. They won't fight it. But none of the disciples trusted the Father like Jesus did. And when the cost of obedience got too high... They either try to flee from it or they try to fight it. I don't know what your tendency is when the cost of obeying the Father gets too high. Some of you try to avoid it, stop following. Some of you try to run away from it. Some of you try and fight it and justify reasons of why it's okay to not obey this time. But either way, fight or flight, they're both a form of disobedience. And it's both birthed out of a distrust of the Father. If you truly trust that a sovereign God is your Father, you would not suspect Him if He leads you to that. This is where Jesus found His strength. Look at verse 32. Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered, each to, each to his own home, and it will leave me alone when the soldiers come and get me. Yet, I am not alone, for the Father is with me. He's saying, I know he's leading you down. I know he's leading me down a costly path, but he's with me. He's committed to me and I know him. I truly know him and I truly trust him and I have faith in him like a father because this God, this father doesn't have faults like an earthly imperfect father does. I don't need to be suspicious of him. He's not telling me to bear this cost of obedience because he's disciplining me out of vindictive anger like some earthly fathers do, you see. I don't need to question him. 
He's not asking me to bear this cost of obedience somehow because he's ill-informed of my situation and has limited data of what's best for me, like some earthly fathers do. He's all-knowing. I don't have to doubt him. If he asks me to obey and make this decision and follow him in this way, and if the cost of obedience that I'm experiencing seems to somehow be crazily unmiscalculated and, and random, I can know that he is sovereign and the effects are not spiraling out of his control. See, my children, again, should sometimes be suspicious of me because when I do discipline them, I sometimes do it out of uncontrolled anger. Parents, you know how that is. Elena should question me because as good as my intentions are, I might in the future be ill-informed of certain situations and lead her down towards the wrong direction. I'm not all-knowing. And Elena should most definitely doubt my power to control all things. (laughs) Because as much as I love her, the laws of nature do not obey me. I can't orchestrate her life and all the external factors surrounding it according to my will. Parents, none of us here can say that we can do that. None of us here can say, follow me, don't worry. Because we're human, but our Father in heaven can. He can. He can say, I'll never fail in that way. I know the cost seems high right now. But I'll never fail you. He's the only one that can say that. So obey. Follow. It's never out of vindictive anger. It's never out of a lack of information. It's never because the situation got too out of hand and he can't control it any longer. I know the cost of obedience is high right now. Whatever it may be for you, I don't know your situation and what God's calling you to do from his word. He's saying, trust me. I love you. I see you. I know what's best for you. And not one small thing will ever get out of my hand in the process. So go ahead, make that decision. See, if the disciples truly knew the Father, as they claimed to have known in verse 29, that's the perspective they would have had entering into Gethsemane. They wouldn't have panicked when the cost of obedience became too high, causing them to avoid it or fight it. They would have watched in awe as Jesus is taken away and waited in hope of how the Father will prove his faithfulness through it. Thus, Jesus asked the disciples, Do you really know? Your mouths declare knowledge of him today, but your life will speak otherwise tomorrow. You say you know God as Father, but the lack of integrity you have in conducting your business, the lack of holiness you have in your romantic relationships, the selfish attitudes you have in the way you use your money, the lack of forgiveness you see in your friendships, and the way you so skillfully run away and avoid obedience to him in those areas of your life that you find too costly shows me that you do not know him. And you do not trust him. That's what Jesus is saying to the disciples. Do you really know? Not just here. That's bare minimum. But with your whole life, you truly trust that faith as Father. And that's exactly our dilemma. That's our dilemma. All the things that I said just now convicted me too because I lack forgiveness. I have lack of integrity. I have lack of love. And that's our dilemma. How can I call him father when all of my life I've behaved like the disciples? When all of my life I've ran away and fought against his will? Last point. 
a peace divinely fortified. Okay. Let's look at the last verse, verse 33. It's a bit odd. Jesus says, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Now, I say that's odd because Jesus here is saying he's the one who's conquered the world, not us. So then why would we take heart and we be encouraged because he's conquered the world? That's kind of weird. It's kind of like me saying, hey, guys, I've won first prize in this race, so you should rejoice. That's kind of weird. I won. Why should you rejoice? Or me saying, hey, guys, I've won this battle, so you should take heart. You should rejoice. Well, how does that connect? Well, it makes no sense unless me winning the race somehow affects you, right? It makes no sense unless my victory in the battle somehow benefits you, right? And that's exactly what Jesus is trying to say. Take heart. I've overcome the world, and my overcoming of the world benefits you. That's why you should take heart if you were to receive it. How so? Well, okay, look. You're right, Jesus says in verse 33. You're right. You will run away, and you will fight against his will and his commands whenever it becomes too, too turbulent, right? You'll fall away. You'll somehow find reason to disobey like you've always have. You'll, you'll, you'll choose comfort and security over me, over following the Father's will, just like the disciples did in Gethsemane. And because of it, you don't deserve to call him Father. What you deserve to call him is judge. Because that's what you deserve for breaking God's judgment. But, he says, I have overcome the world. I didn't run away. I didn't fight the Father's will. Even when obedience to me caused turbulence, even when obedience to me cost me my life, I didn't do any of that. I obeyed him perfectly up into the cross. And you should rejoice because of that. Okay, why? How does your obedience on the cross somehow benefit me? Because you know what Jesus' obedience to the Father's will did? You know what his obedience to the Father's will that led him to the cross, you know what that did? That paid for your sins. Remember the judgment that you and I deserve because of our disobedience? For every time we run away, for every time we fight the Father's will, for every time we very creatively justified our disobedience, Jesus is saying, the punishment you deserve for that, I took it all upon myself on that cross. I obeyed the Father to the cross. I've overcome the world and all its turbulences, and because of that, your sins may be forgiven. So rejoice. In me, Jesus says in verse 33, not in your own righteousness, not in your own obedience, in me take heart. In me rejoice, because in me your sins are paid for. On the cross, the Son of God endured the world and obeyed the Father, so that sinners like us, who daily choose the world instead of the Father, may be forgiven and adopted as children of the Heavenly Father. And now because Jesus obeyed the Father perfectly and took our place on the cross for us, the Father will never abandon you. And that's what you need. This is what we need most for assurance for us to follow Him when it's costly, right? In order to follow and obey God, what's the first thing, what, what, what is it that we need? Usually most people have no problem believing that God is sovereign. That, that's usually not a problem. Usually people don't have a problem believing that God is all-powerful, that God is all-knowing and all-controlling. That's not usually what people will need convincing of. What is it? What is the first thing that your heart usually asks God when tribulation comes? What is the first thing your, your heart asks God 
when, 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 when obedience to him is costly, when you close your eyes, you don't say, God, I thought you were all-powerful. That's not the first thing you ask him, usually. Usually, you don't ask, God, I thought you were all-controlling and all-knowing. You don't usually ask that question. What is it your heart asks, usually? You close your eyes. When obedience to him becomes costly, this is what you usually ask him. I thought you loved me. Right? I thought you loved me. See, knowing that God is sovereign, all-controlling, and all that, that's usually not a problem to us. But what is a problem to us is convinced that he loves us and convinced that he will use all of that for our benefit, for his love for us. And if you're not convinced of that, every time the cost of obedience becomes too high, you're going to run away. But when your heart is casted down by a shadow of doubt, what do you do? You look to the cross. That's when the sovereign God of the universe, who is also your father, shows you and answers you. I do. I do love you. Tell your heart that. And when you look at the cross, you know God's sovereign and all that kind of stuff, but now you look at the cross and you ask, but does he love me? You look at the cross and you don't need to be suspicious of his motives. You don't need to be suspicious of his intentions, no matter how high the cost is. You, 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 you don't need to... You don't need to be suspect of his knowledge or, or of how much he loves you. He knows. He knows the cost is high, but he's your father. Take that step. Trust him. Obey his word. I am God, and I'm also your father. But last thing I'll say, the question we still have is, even Christians today ask this question, what if I fail again? What if in the future I run away and fight his will again? That's a lot of the reason of why people don't want to receive this love because they're scared that they're going to fail over and over and over again and that the father is going to get tired of them, right? And this is absolutely important for us to remember that the direction of salvation is top down. He initiated. You didn't get to him. You never earned it in the first place. I've said this too many times, but I'll say it again. You cannot lose something you never earned. He, by his grace, came to you. Even in our passage today, Jesus is foreseeing what? The disciples' future sins. He's saying, in the future, you're going to disobey me. In the future, you're going to run away from me. In the future, you're going to abandon me. But you know what? God is your father because I'm going to die for you. And I love you still. Dr. Packer, again in his uh, book, Knowing God, says this. Your faith will not fail while God sustains it. You're not strong enough to fall away while God is resolved to hold you. You have to know it's top down. If you don't, you're never going to have an assurance of his love and salvation. And if you don't have that, you're always going to be suspect of his intentions when he asks you to pay and, be, and, and pay a high cost for obedience. But if you know that all your sins have been dealt with on the cross, you know that he'll never spite you, he'll never hate you, he'll never condemn you, if, if you have truly received the initiating work of this Trinitarian God on the cross, of the Father sending down the Son to die for your sins, and the Spirit being sent to reveal this truth in your heart, have you received it? Have you received it? Not just informationally, but truly, have you? Well, let's let the way we live our lives outside of these doors Answer that one for us. Pray with me. No power of hell 
can take us from your hands. Because we have the most powerful hands in the universe holding us in it. And so that now us in you, based in your righteousness, in your work, in your initiating, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, we've been included into this Trinitarian love. And as sinners and deserving of judgment, yet now we have grace upon grace upon grace. Father, help our hearts believe the true objective reality that you have made effective. If we've received you, you love us. And although the cost of obedience might seem high, it is never done out of spite. It is never done out of hatred or, or unholy, unjust anger. All your wrath has been placed on your son so that now sinners like us can be adopted eternally as your children and can never lose that salvation because it is not founded upon our own works but on your sovereign hand. And Father, if this truth infiltrates deeply in our hearts and we beg you that it would through the Spirit, the next time we face a cost of obedience, let us come to it and confront it and say, the Father loves me and my Father is all-powerful. And until you show me something more powerful than my Father, I will not have reason to worry. And we'll take that step, obey Him, follow His commands, even the cost. You stand me pray. Amen.